This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Good Die Young, The Verdict on Henry Kissinger, co-published with Jacobin Magazine and edited by Renee Rojas, Bhaskar Sankara, and Jonah Walters. If the American foreign policy establishment is a grand citadel, Henry Kissinger is the specter haunting its dusty hallways. For half a century, he was an omnipresent figure in war rooms and press briefings, shepherding the American empire through successive attempts at expansion. For generations of anti-war activists, Kissinger personified the depravity of the U.S. war machine. The Good Die Young compiles essays from scholars and journalists, including Gerald Horn, Carolyn Eisenberg, and Chip Gibbons, with an introduction from Pulitzer Prize winner Greg Grandin. This collection of essays was compiled years ago. Verso was ready and waiting for Kissinger's death to publish this searing anti-obituary. The Good Die Young, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second of my two-part interview with Osama Makdisi on the history of religious coexistence in the Mashrik, the Arab region stretching from the eastern Mediterranean to Iraq. I strongly recommend that you listen to part one first if you haven't done so already. Among the most maddeningly ignorant pieces of conventional wisdom about the Middle East is that it's a place of timeless, tribal, intercommunal conflict, pitting Muslim against Jew and Sunni against Shia. The reality is precisely the opposite. Arabs in the region have endeavored time and again to build interfaith solidarity against imperialism and colonialism. Meanwhile, Western imperialism and colonialism has consistently imposed or exacerbated sectarianism. This is the actual context, the actual history, that explains the nightmarish violence that courses through so much of the region today. Sectarian violence that appears, to the West, as decontextualized spectacle, and thus the region's natural, ordinary, always-and-forever state of things. Last episode, Makdisi and I discussed how during the 19th century Ottoman Empire, internal and external pressures pushed the government to initiate a series of top-down political and military reforms known as the Tanzimat. That era coincided with the more bottom-up Nada, or Arab Enlightenment, an intellectual and political ferment that reconceptualized Arab as an ecumenical identity encompassing Muslims, Christians, and Jews. That ecumenical frame came under enormous stress as the Ottoman Empire collapsed following World War I and its wartime persecutions of the Armenians. An independent Turkey emerged amidst this genocidal violence. Soon thereafter came Turkey's so-called population exchange with Greece, which mutually ethnically cleansed long-standing populations suddenly deemed foreign following a bitter war. This moment marked a huge divergence that, Magdisi argues, has not been subjected to sufficient historical analysis. 
On the one hand, Turkey, the one-time seat of Ottoman power, sought to emulate a victorious West by embarking on the construction of a secular state that was in fact a violently ethno-nationalist one. The Arab Mashrik, however, fought to maintain its remarkable commitment to religious coexistence. That commitment, however, was challenged by the imposition of direct British and French colonial rule under the post-World War I mandate system, which carved up the Mashrik into the British and French colonial mandate governments in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Palestine. European powers divided and conquered in the name of protecting religious minorities and of assisting natives in someday securing their own self-determination. Except for Palestine, which, thanks to Britain's 1917 Balfour Declaration, was reserved not for native self-determination, but rather for massive European Jewish settlement to fulfill the colonial Zionist project of creating a national home for the Jewish people. This put incredible stress onto the Arab world's ecumenical frame, pushing Arab Muslims, Christians, and especially Jews into increasingly hostile sectarian camps. In fact, it largely created the binary opposition between Arab and Jew that so many take for granted today. This episode, we discuss how colonial Zionism and the establishment of the State of Israel, the Nakba of the Palestinians in 1948, smashed the ecumenical frame in Palestine and upset it everywhere across the region. As Palestinian Muslims and Christians were ethnically cleansed from their lands to make way for the new state of Israel, Arab Jews were pushed and pulled into Israel. Rather than see these as separate tragedies and traumas, we discuss how they both reflected the impact of colonial Zionism that rejected an ecumenical Palestine, but also the very possibility of being a Jewish Arab or an Arab Jew. This is not a romantic argument that the Mashrik would be a paradise were it not for a century plus of constant European and American colonialism and imperialism. But it is to emphasize that the region has been fundamentally shaped in the most very basic sense by constant Western intervention. Time and again, Western powers have imposed a sectarian, governmental, and interpretive framework on the region, and then used that externally imposed sectarianism as an alibi and rationale for Western intervention. And then, consistently in response, Arab political movements against Western colonialism and imperialism, drawing on the Nada, have embraced an ecumenical Arab identity that rejected religious division, we end by discussing in somewhat broad strokes how that's happened after 1948 and all the way through the present day. Soon, I'll be picking up where Usama and I leave off with a two-part interview with Abed Takriti on the history of Arab political radicalisms, socialism, communism, Nasserism, Baathism, Islamism, that sweep the post-1948 region. But before we get started, I'm so glad to hear from so many of you that The Dig has been providing essential analysis and context to help you make sense of the present crises. If you agree that The Dig plays a critical role, please make a monthly or annual contribution at patreon.com slash The Dig. The Dig is overwhelmingly listener-supported, supported by listeners like you. That's why we can put out every episode for free with no paywall, 
We want everyone to listen, regardless of whether or not you can afford to make a contribution. But that only works because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. What's more, all contributors get our excellent newsletter authored by the brilliant Ben Maybe, which is free on our website. You get it delivered to your email inbox, and contributors can also receive, depending on how much you donate and where you live, a book or books in the mail, a tote bag, or maybe a coffee mug. Contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There is a link in the show notes. Hit it now. We really appreciate it. Okay, here's the second of my two-part interview with Osama Magdisi, professor of history and chancellor's chair at the University of California, Berkeley. His books include Faith Misplaced, The Broken Promise of U.S.-Arab Relations, 1820-2001, to Artillery of Heaven, American Missionaries in the Failed Conversion of the Middle East, and the book we're discussing today, Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame in the Making of the Modern Arab World. Osama Makdisi, welcome back to The Dig. It's good to be back. You write, quote, I use the term Arab in this history to indicate a conscious modern identification among Arabs that transcends religious affiliations. And you continue elsewhere, quote, there was, after all, a crucial distinction between thinking of oneself as a Christian Arab and describing oneself as a Christian in, but not of, the Arab world, between being a Muslim Arab with Christian and Jewish Arab compatriots and being primarily a Muslim in the Islamic world surrounded by dhimmis, between being an Arab Jew and being a Zionist. The modern idea of being Arab, in other words, encompassed more than a secular emphasis on material progress and national unity, and more than a religious identification with Islam's manifest relationship to Arab language, history, and culture. Just as obviously, being Arab was an ecumenical position in the face of a Western colonial discourse that aggressively sought to sectarianize the landscape of the post-Ottoman Middle East. I'm going to be interviewing Abed Tikriti soon, and we'll be discussing a lot Arab nationalism, Nasserism, and a whole range of Arab political radicalisms that were profoundly consequential from the 1950s on. What you're describing here, I think, will lay some critical groundwork for that discussion. How did this modern identity category of Arab emerge, and what, in what sort of identities did it displace? And did this imagined community encompassing so many distinctive regional cultures as well as faiths, did it, did it also entail a sort of political and ethical position, a certain idea of, of politics and what sort of polity modern Arabs might build? It's a, a massive question and a question that, that requires a lot of uh, nuance. But what I would say is that first, uh, first and foremost, the idea of being Arab in a modern sense is this, it's what we talked about before. It's this idea of belonging to different faiths, religious communities, in other words, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, and at the same time, transcending that through a relationship to either Arabic language, but more concretely to a notion of being Arab, an identity of feeling Arab. 
there's something quite quite profoundly ecumenical about this. And at the same time, there's something that it's it's not displacing an Ottoman identity initially, because one could be Arab. In fact, the notion of being Arab in a modern sense of citizenship develops initially in an Ottoman context and in relationship to an Ottoman sovereign that had pledged itself, at least theoretically and legally, to equality of all its subjects. We talked about this. And so my point is that there is a sense that they, they could coexist. You could be both Ottoman and Arab. You could be an Ottoman Arab, and you could emphasize either the Ottoman part or the Arab part. And what happens at the end of the empire when the Ottoman state is taken over by what's known as a CUP, or the Committee for Union and Progress, which was becomes essentially a Turkish, an Ottoman Turkish nationalist formation that is committed to Turkifying aspects of the state or the state and, and it commits the awful massacres, the genocide of the Armenians, but also persecutes nationalists, Arab nationalists. The break between Ottomanism and Arabism becomes um, almost inevitable, but it, it wasn't sort of preordained. And there was a sense that these, these identities could coexist. But like all identities, obviously, these things are dynamic and they depend so much on context. But most of all, it's the profound ecumenical nature, this idea that being Arab is something that's open to to peoples of different faiths. And that's what you see more so than anything else in the context of an Ottoman Empire that itself had been multi-ethnic and multilinguistic for, for centuries. You write, quote, just as Christians and Jews had to choose between being a cloistered dependent minority and belonging to the anti-colonial nationalist majority, so too did Sunni and Shia Muslim individuals have to decide where and how to draw the line between belonging to an imagined community that transcended their faith, the very essence of a modern political community, whether Iraqi, Syrian, Egyptian, or Pan-Arab, or belonging to an imagined community defined principally by their faith. Inevitably, Muslim Arabs, such as the Hashemite king of Iraq, Faisal, the Syrian prime minister, Jamil Mardam Bey, the pan-Islamist, Shakib Arslan, the Egyptian feminist, Huda Shawari, the great nationalist pedagogue, Sati al-Husri, the co-founder of the pan-Arabist Ba'ath party, Salah al-Din Bitar, and the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna, each affiliated with the idea of an ecumenical nation in different ways. That is quite a range. How does this incredible multitude of interwar Arab politics that, that you're writing about here that are emerging, how does it all fit within the ecumenical frame? And then why, as you write, was it the secular nationalists who very quickly began to win the vast majority of popular support? Well, because of the fact that they all emerge from an Ottoman context where the ecumenical frame first developed, this whole idea of being Arab, of being Ottoman, of being modern in a sense of transcending religious difference without denying that difference. So that inevitably opens up a whole range. And what I call it, what I say in the book is it's a war of position within the ecumenical frame. So there's people just like in any society, in any in any religiously and ethnically diverse society, what you have here is different ideological positions. And one of the things I'm pointing to is the fact that ideology and ideological difference in the Middle East, like anywhere else, is not simply based on religious difference, which is how the Orientalists and the racists often insist. And those who say, well, in the Middle East, people are only majority and minority, or in other words, Muslim and non-Muslim. It's not true. People have all sorts of faiths 
all sorts of, I mean, political affiliations and identities. You can be Christian and be a communist, and you could be a right-wing Christian, you could be a left-wing Christian, you could be a right-wing Jewish person, you could be a left-wing Jewish person, you could be a communist, etc., etc., etc. And the same for Muslims. And so the point I'm trying to make is that none of the major sort of political formulations of the early 20th century that preceded the elaboration of the more the more famous or the more sort of well-known Baathist and uh, you know Pan-Arabist Nasserist later in, in the in the 20th century, the 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 earlier period people had were struggling with this question: of What do we do once the Ottoman Empire is destroyed? Once there are these new states that we talked about that were created by the British and the French, how does one affiliate? How does one sort of make sense of these new borders? What is the relationship between these new borders imposed by the Europeans and this much wider identity, whether it's Islamic or Arab? And how does one reconcile the two? And so people had, as I said, different ways of, of, of answering this question. Some were more Islamist, the Muslim Brotherhood, for example. Some were more quietist. Some were more politically anti-colonial. Some were more secular. Some were more pan-Arabist. Some were regional and so on and so forth. In other words, we really should focus on this point that there is religious sectarian difference is not the only determinant of ideological difference. And there really is a crucial point to remember. People do not simply identify politically based on their religious affiliation. It's something that's so basic in, the, in America. We understand that intuitively. But somehow when it comes to the Middle East, we think of a, a Muslim and a Christian and a Jewish person are always going to be antithetical to each other which is simply not true. You write that just as the mid-20th century Mashriq had landed upon, quote, an overlapping consensus concerning the necessity of political independence, the principle of religious diversity, the equality of all citizens, and the codification and maintenance of highly gendered and unequal sectarian regimes of personal status. These regimes have governed marriage, divorce, and inheritance for all citizens and have prevented the introduction of even an optional secular marriage code anywhere in the Arab world. What is the stubborn persistence of personal status laws, the impossibility, as you mentioned, of a civil secular marriage code? What does that reveal about the, the broader contours and perhaps limits of this ecumenical frame and perhaps more specifically the limits of an ecumenical frame understood not not as secular universalism, but as devolving matters of civil law to these parcelized religious authorities? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. It reminds us that the ecumenical frame uh, and this ecumenical culture is not necessarily radical and uh, emancipatory necessarily. It can also be conservative. And, and, they, and the trouble, of course, and the problem with politics around the world is that people often coalesce around what is the common denominator? And the problem in the in the Arab world, at least in the Arab East, is that there is this consensus that appears fairly quickly around this idea of segregating or separating secular citizenship, which of course is male for initially, then of course it, it extends to, to women, but at the same time an insistence across the board of these separate personal status regimes, in other words, marriage, divorce, and inheritance codes which are codified in this period. So it's not like these are things that, that, that were medieval and that continued into the present. They were in the present codified, often under colonial authorities. But to be honest, it's clearly something that, that there was broad consensus about, although not the particularities of the specific codes themselves. 
and there and there have been debates ever since and and battles ever since within each community especially by the more progressive elements in these communities to make and argue for more progressive codes that are less biased less discriminatory and so on and so forth but the but the idea what it points to is the fact that again as in any society with difference there are different factions different interpretations of what to make of this difference and where to draw the line between religion and uh, the secular state. Remember that these codes of marriage, inheritance, and divorce, as I said, are codified in the 20th century. It's, they, they themselves are, there's an arbitrariness to what gets included, what doesn't get included, why this interpretation as opposed to that interpretation. And they've been contested ever since, but there has been no secular civil code, and that is a huge problem, it, it seems to me. Let's, let's turn back to Palestine, where the imposition of colonial Zionist ethno-nationalism shattered the ecumenical frame, and it also intensely destabilized the basis for coexistence across the region. But you write that initially, many Arabs did not oppose and even admired early Jewish settlers of the first Aliyah, which took place during the final decades of the 19th century under Ottoman rule, in a sense, even before before modern Zionism was, was fully elaborated. You write, quote, the problem was not the Jewishness of the settlers, but the gradual crystallization of the nationalist Zionist project that regarded Palestine as a Jewish national homeland. And while, while these Zionists thought that they were bringing a form of European modernity to the Middle East, you note that many Arabs actually accused Zionism as being, I think it would be fair to say, fundamentally anti-modern. You write, quote, colonial Zionism was not simply illegitimate in the eyes of most Arabs. For many of them, it was morally regressive because it represented a negation of the ecumenical spirit of the Nada. Several of the Palestinian petitions submitted to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 explicitly stated that they opposed Zionism because it, quote, incites religious fanaticism and selfishness in the 20th century. Key here was the sense that Zionism was an anachronism. In Arab eyes, colonial Zionism interrupted progress, incited sectarianism, and was antithetical to the common good. It's really remarkable because we're so often told the story in reverse of, of a xenophobic almost Arab world recoiling at the mere presence of Jewish people. What does the actual basis of this early Palestinian opposition to Zionism, what does that say about the different ways people mobilized and contested the idea of modernity in the region and around the world, and as specifically as European colonialism imposed itself upon the Mashriq? Well, I mean, I mean, the most obvious answer is the fact that people in the late Ottoman Empire, in the post-Ottoman Arab East, in the Mashriq, the, the people there overwhelmingly understood that there was this question that they all had to grapple with, which is where to draw the line between religious belonging, religious difference, and a common state. And what's interesting is that universally, except for the Zionists, universally there seems to have been a consensus that however much one wanted to be and wanted to have, for example, Islam in the public sphere, there wouldn't just be an Islamic state as such. There would be a state that included all peoples, whether in Egypt, whether in Syria, whether in Lebanon, whether in Palestine, and so on and so forth, Iraq. And so this question of being a state being a state and being a political community had to include others. There was no sense that you would create a, a Christian state or an Islamic state as such. 
And so precisely because of this history of the 19th century that we talked about earlier, that if you impose the idea of a religious state for one group, by definition, you're going to, of course, exclude those who don't belong to that group. And you're going to exacerbate, not minimize, the great problem of sectarianism, of religious differentiation and sectarian differentiation and political disunity that the Arabs of all stripes in the 19th century were trying to overcome this question of disunity and harmony. And so there, there was a very powerful sense of Zionism, this idea of fusing a modern political project with religious exclusivity, which is what Zionism does, of course, is profoundly problematic just on that level, let alone the colonial level where you're coming in as a European and you're sort of imposing this project on a native population. So at two different levels, Zionism, colonial Zionism in particular, is profoundly, profoundly problematic and was viewed as anachronistic because it was going to come in and strike at the very heart of what modern Ottomanism and modern Arabism is, which is ecumenical. You're coming in and you're creating a very different kind of political project that by definition excludes the vast majority of the population on the basis of religious difference, which is extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, it sort of makes sense maybe in a European frame, I don't know, but it makes no sense in the Arab East where the, the entire 19th century you could think of was the great problem was overcoming this question of Muslim and non-Muslim. And then lo and behold, because of colonial Zionism and British colonialism, a new question emerges that separates Arab from Jew. And by Arab, of course, is meant Muslim and Christian Arab versus Jew. I mean, that's an entirely new conflict. And, and, and the ontological difference between Arab and Jew is exactly what the anachronism is. There's no reason for this makes no sense given the history of the 19th century, Ottoman, Arab, East. And, and so that's why they viewed Zionism, colonial Zionism, with such. once they understood what this project was, initially they had no idea what the project was. They had absolutely no idea. They saw these people coming in and there's no problem with, with having Jews because Jews are indigenous to the region. So the, the great problem was once they realized that this project was not just about Jewish people coming to Palestine as they always had, but about coming to Palestine to transform Palestine into an exclusionary Jewish state, that's when the alarm bell started going off. Yeah, and an important point to underline is that, in, in essence, Zionists insisted on being settlers rather than immigrants. You write, quote, the explicit and relentless political demand for a Jewish home dependent on Western military power foreclosed the possibility of a cultural Zionism that could be reconciled with the nada ethos of conservative coexistence. It forced a choice of national sides in a new existential conflict between the Jews and the Arabs. The Syrian historian Muhammad Kurd Ali noted in 1925 that Zionists, quote, rebel against becoming Arab. But Arab leaders, by contrast, you write that they consistently proposed welcoming Jewish people as, as neighbors on the basis of equal citizenship in a, in a future post-colonial Arab republic. And you write, quote, in the 1940s, almost all the formal Arab demands and petitions submitted to the British government were based on the idea that the existing Arab majority should exercise democratic sovereignty over what was, in their eyes, an obviously Arab country, while Jews who lived there had a right to stay there and be full citizens of this Arab state. It's remarkable because today and for decades, of course, we've heard this surreal argument that it's, that it's Palestinians who want to push Jews off the land, drive them into the sea, 
even commit genocide against the entirety of the Jewish people. Is there a counterfactual history we can imagine where where Jewish immigrants to Palestine would have become equal citizens of an Arab state while perhaps still fulfilling cultural Zionism's ambitions of Jewish renewal? Or would that maybe also not have worked because even in the hypothetical absence of political Zionism, the mass Jewish settlement under the auspices of British colonial power that cultural Zionism still required would have made, still made such coexistence impossible. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a counterfactual. So the, I think without colonial Zionism, I think the situation would have been far less bleak. There's no, there's no doubt. I mean, again, I, we're speculating here, but yes, I mean, there's no question that colonial Zionism precipitated this break, this fundamental, terrible, ongoing break, so that as I said, one can be today, without any hesitation, one can say I'm a Muslim Arab, one can say I'm a Christian Arab. But if you say you're a Jewish Arab, people say, wait, hang on, there's something wrong there. That doesn't make sense. And that is entirely down to colonial Zionism in the Arab East. And so the, the question of when you say cultural Zionism, it depends what you mean by cultural Zionism. Now, I think cultural Zionism could certainly have flourished in Palestine in the sense, as you said, as part of a an ecumenical frame, because there was also... There were Christian pietistic formations and formulations and societies. There were Muslim societies and, and schools and so on and so forth. I mean, so there's no reason why there couldn't have been a cultural Zionist presence because one could be a Zionist, a cultural Zionist, as you're saying, without being tied to a colonialist project. And that's what Hans Kohn and others, you know, the, the famous German Zionist in the 1920s, who was part of Brit Shalom, basically these people initially came in with this idea of what, what Zionism would be. And then he, at least, he basically at some point realized in the 1920s, 1929, in fact, he realized this is completely unsustainable. You cannot have colonial Zionism and an ethical Judaism. They just don't go together. You need to, one, ha one has to choose, ultimately, was, was Cohen's point. And so he, he abandons Zionism in that moment because of the colonial nature of the Zionist project in Palestine. So, yes, there could have been perhaps a cultural Zionism had it had there not been a colonial Zionism, but we don't know because that was never that was never on offer after 1917. Yeah, I mean, obviously the 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 Jewish cultural Zionists who proposed by nationalism instead of a Jewish sovereign state certainly had a more humane, less certain to be catastrophic vision than political Zionists, but but you do note that it was still in many ways, maybe not in the case of Cohen, but definitely in the case of Judah Magnus and even Martin Buber, it was still in many ways a sectarian and colonial framework that that Judah 100%. Magnus's Arab interlocutors opposed due to its sectarian communalism. Yes, because they understood. Because again, people in the Middle East understand perfectly well that when, when people say a binational state, they, they, they seem to be completely ignorant of the reality of Lebanon and of the Eastern question in the 19th century, and of how Europeans have manipulated religious difference and have sectarian problems. So a binational state simply means that, as far as Judah Magnus and Martin Buber and others, sort of, yes, they were certainly more, you can say, cognizant of the fact that Palestinians, or as they call them, Arabs, shouldn't be oppressed as such. Uh, and they were far, they were far more, or at least Judah Magnus was far more, you could say, humane uh, in certain ways than Ben-Gurion or, or, or other sort of colonial Zionist leaders who, who put into effect the Zionist project that ethnically cleansed the Palestinians with gusto. But the problem with, with Magnus and his project is that in the end, he's still saying, and the binationalists are still saying, 
where we still want Jewish immigration, mass Jewish immigration into Palestine, irrespective of what the native population says, which is just fundamentally flies in the face of the most basic of demands of the Palestinian indigenous population, which is you cannot change the demographics on such a mass scale and tell me it's not a coercive project. So the problem with binationalism is that there's still this coercive element to it, because on what basis do you have binationalism um, without without some kind of democratic feature? Because Magnus is saying, you know, we're going to have an, even though as late as 1947, the Jewish population of Palestine was 30%. And that's with all the mass immigration, all the refugees coming from Nazi Germany and from anti-Semitic Europe who were barred from going to England and barred from going to the United States because of the racism in these places. They were sent to Palestine because that was the only place they could flee to. And they end up coming to Palestine. And then the question is, okay, so you have a minority, a significant by now minority, that the Palestinian natives had no choice in whether to accept or welcome because it was forced on them by the British colonial structures, the the philo-Zionist structures of the mandate. And then the question is, what do you do with these people and how do you, how do you, do you build a democratic state or do you build a perpetually sectarian state where you have these two groups and, and how do you equalize 70% with 30%? And how do you give 30% equal shares with 70%? There's something that doesn't make, you see what I'm saying? The binational thing totally, it doesn't in or elides the question of the fact that the, the vast majority of the population was Arab. A binational state is less problematic than a Jewish state that was ultimately established, but it is still a sectarian state that is not a democratic state of its citizens. Correct. Well, it depends on what the formula, I mean, we, we have to be, we have to be fair in the sense we have to know what the ultimate formulation of this binational state. But the point is, the vision is that they they insisted themselves on mass immigration all the way through. So again, totally ignoring Palestinian demands and totally ignoring the idea of a secular democratic state and insisting on this idea of a Jewish communal sectarian. They liked Lebanon, basically. So then you end up in this situation of maybe it would have, I mean, who knows? It's a counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened but we know that there was still, and this is the point to emphasize, there was still a profoundly coercive element, a colonial element to the binationalists. And their interlocutors were overwhelmingly themselves and the Zionists, like more colonial Zionists. They weren't actually in, a, in any significant way, as far as I can tell, interlocutors with, with Palestinians. It became an internal Jewish debate inside of Palestine, largely and overwhelmingly. So you have, you have Jabotinsky, you have Ben-Gurion and you have Magnus, or, you know, and, and that spread. And they're all debating with each other what the form of the Jewish state should be in relationship to the Palestinians. Yeah, but none of them are actually operating within the ecumenical frame. None of them are. Well, the binationalists are, are, are the closest, but, but still in a coercive aspect. And certainly, and none of them are, of course, from Palestine. I mean, to put it in the most basic terms, neither Magnus nor Ben-Gurion nor Jabotinsky are from Palestine or from the region. That's the most remarkable and obvious thing to any scholar of the region who's honest about this. And it's a point that cannot be underemphasized, this, this idea that, that Zionism and binationalism and you know, revisionist Zionism and mainstream Zionism all coming from Europe. It's, just, it's remarkable. You write, quote, Ben-Gurion advocated reducing the Arabs to a minority in Palestine by massively expanding Jewish colonization because... Arabs were not Jews. Simultaneously, he vowed to treat the new Arab minority as if they were Jews. Ben-Gurion, in effect, wanted not so much to reverse-engineer the Millet system of the Ottoman period, 
but rather to reinvent in Palestine a modern European national state with a clearly defined Jewish majority and an Arab minority. The Arabs of Palestine would become, figuratively, its Jews, tolerated and politically emancipated, but forever different and unassimilable into the modern Jewish body politic. This is a remarkable passage. How how was Zionism's approach to the so-called Arab question, to in fact creating a so-called Arab question, informed by how Europe had conceived of its Jewish question? Well, we know, I mean, it depends which colonial Zionist we're talking about. But what I would say is that there's, there's a profound irony, a perverse irony, I would say, in that Ben-Gurion so clearly articulates precisely what the Jewish question was in Europe. And he recreates, and the Zionists, the colonial Zionists, recreate a Jewish question in Palestine, but it's now called the Arab question. And everything they fought against, everything they fought against, they, they create for the Palestinians. It's, it's beyond remarkable. The irony is stunning when you think about it. Everything, precisely the whole point about, about the critique of European emancipation of the Jews was that they could be politically emancipated, but they would be, according to the anti-Semites and according, of course, to the Zionists like Herzl, they could never be incorporated into the national body politic. That's, the, that's what the anti-Semites kept saying. They're not part of our nation. And that's what Zionists like Herzl said, Yes, we can't be part of the nation here. That's why we need to create a Jewish state outside of Europe, right? That's the logic of colonial Zionism, in a sense. And and the the remarkable thing is how Ben Gurion essentially creates and and colonial Zionism creates an Arab question where there was none, because they were committed, like the binationalists, by the way, they were committed to demographic transformation. That's the whole point of the binational. That's the coercive aspect of the binationalists. They insisted on mass. Uh, emigration to Palestine, irrespective of native wishes, which is exactly what Ben-Gurion and Weizmann before Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky also demanded and insisted upon, that there could be no Arab-Palestinian native say as to how many Jewish settlers or refugees were going to be allowed into Palestine. And so, yeah, it's it's a remarkable, it's, it's truly remarkable. I mean, just think about the whole idea of the ghetto of Gaza, the way Gaza has been created, the, the whole thing of the way the West Bank has been parceled off into sections where Palestinians cannot go and can go, and how remarkable it is in terms of what the Pale of Settlement, you know, th- these kinds of comparisons, these are, of course, these analogies ultimately break down, but there's a profound irony, as I said, a perverse irony, that Zionism has no way to incorporate Palestinians as equal, as truly equal citizens, so long as they're committed to a Jewish state. And the great fiction in America and among the, 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 the supporters of Israel in America is that Israel could be, quote, a Jewish and democratic state. You can't possibly be both a Jewish and democratic state in a multi-religious Palestine. You're either democratic or you're Jewish. And that contradiction is obviously manifesting today more so than ever before. You write about, about Palestinian leader George Antonius, a Cambridge-educated Christian who wrote this popular 1938 English-language book, the Arab Awakening. He was also a close ally of Arab higher committee leader Haj Amin. George Antonius wrote of welcoming Jews as equal citizens of an Arab state, quote, a solution along these lines would be both fair and practicable. It would protect the natural rights of the Arabs in Palestine and satisfy their legitimate national aspirations. 
It would also enable the Jews to have a national home in the spiritual and cultural sense, in which Jewish values could flourish, and the Jewish genius have the freest play to seek inspiration in the land of its ancient connection. It would secure Great Britain's interest on a firm basis of consent, and it would restore Palestine to its proper place as a symbol of peace in the hearts of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. No other solution seems practicable, except possibly at the cost of an unpredictable holocaust of Arab, Jewish, and British lives. George Antonius, he was quite prescient. Who was he, and what does his biography reveal about the the Arab leadership of Mandate Palestine and what their sort of ideological and philosophical orientation was? And then, and then lastly, how did British and Zionist leaders respond to, to proposals from people like George Antonius? George Antonius was a remarkable figure. Um, he was not a leader in a political sense of the term, so it's important to underscore that. He was an intellectual leader. He was certainly somebody who wrote the most famous history in the interwar period of the Arab nationalist movement or national movement. The book is called The Arab Awakening, and he wrote it in 1938. Uh, George Antonius was obviously somebody who was educated, you know, highly educated. He he was fluent in Arabic and English. And he was, of course, he was Christian, as you said, but he was Palestinian and he was Arab. And he had a wide range of friendships and, and acquaintances in this region. He was sort of the epitome of the ecumenical frame, if you think about it. He was the personification of this ecumenical frame. Somebody who was, belonged to a particular faith, but also transcended that faith and his proposals were eminently, as you said, they're prescient, but they're also eminently logical, given the fact that he understood perfectly well. And he wrote this, remember, he wrote the book in 1938, The Arab Awakening. And the remarkable thing about the book and, and the various petitions that he authored was that he understood that there was no way to create a Jewish state without it being a profound injustice to the Palestinians. There was no way for Europe to solve its Jewish question and its persecution of Jews and anti-Semitism. And he, and he talks about this in, in, the, in the Arab Awakening in 1938. He says it, the last pages of that book are remarkable, where he says, what's happening, this is before Kristallnacht, but the Nazis have already come to power. And he says, what, what the, what the, what's happening to the Jews of Europe is simply unacceptable. It's unconscionable. But he says, there is no way to be moral, and I'm paraphrasing, there's no way to be moral and solve this horror of what's happening to the Jews in Europe at the expense of another people who have no hand in this horror. It would, be, it would be a travesty. And he warns against that. And of course, you're asking, what did the British do? They ignored him. They ignored him the way they ignored every single Arab proposal of virtually every single Arab intellectual as well as political leader to, to end colonial Zionism. The British didn't end colonial. The British basically abandoned Palestine in 19, after World War II, to the Zionists, in effect. And the partition plan of the UN split Palestine into two states, and of course uh, split Palestine into two states at the expense of the Palestinians whose land was being divided up and whose homes and so on and so forth were being given up to create space for a Jewish state. In other words, the land, half of Palestine was going to be given, more than half of Palestine was going to be given over to the Jewish minority, to create a Jewish state. And Antonius understood perfectly well that this was a monstrous injustice and an immoral thing, and he was one of many. 
people who pointed this out and, and as I said, was ignored from the beginning of the mandate. Remember, from 1920 onwards, the British consistently ignored, downplayed, denied Palestinian demands for a secular democratic state. They always did. George Antonia said quite clearly that the Nazi crimes against the Jewish people in Europe cannot be solved at the expense of, of Arab, of Palestinian people who had no hand in it. But notably, Zionist apologists have long pointed to Arab higher committee leader Hajamin's later support for Nazi Germany as evidence that the Palestinians themselves were, were fundamentally anti-Semites, as though, as though they almost were complicit in the distant Holocaust themselves. What is this Zionist narrative that's emerged over the decades about Hajimid and what does it obscure about what was actually taking place in, in Palestine and with Hajimid's own, own trajectory? Well, first of all, it obscures the fact that there's a colonial enterprise in Palestine that was extraordinarily unjust and, and oppressive and coercive, the colonial Zionist enterprise backed by the British before Haj Amin even comes onto the scene. And so it's very convenient for, as you said, Zionist apologists to latch on to Haj Amin's uh, sort of deplorable uh, collaboration with the Nazis. But on the other hand, there's there's nothing, there's really, honestly, as historians, most historians will tell you, there's nothing very surprising about people turning to the enemy of their enemies to, to achieve their goals, especially after Haj Amin had been expelled from Palestine. Haj Amin had seen his people slaughtered and seen his people oppressed. And again, without in any way, shape, or form justifying what he does with the Nazis and what he does with 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 Hitler and his meeting with Hitler, Haj Amin began his career in British Mandatory Palestine as a creation of the British, as the head of the Supreme Muslim Council. He was an Islamic leader. He was a national leader. He had no association with national socialism or the Nazis until much, much later. And to emphasize Haj Amin is to deliberately put the focus on the later period to avoid talking about the structures and the context and the history of colonialism and extreme colonial violence and coercion that is at the heart of colonial Zionism that drove Haj Amin out of Palestine into exile and eventually into his deplorable collaboration with what he considered the enemies of his enemy. But the idea of fixating on that and ignoring everything else that came before it is precisely what historians just should never do. You cannot just take the end result and, and pretend that there's no history before. The point is, it's, it's obviously, obviously, it's an absurd position to say that Palestinians are anti-Semitic or that Palestinians or Haj Amin is responsible for the Holocaust. That's absolutely absurd. It's laughable. It's laughable for a scholar or for, for any person to actually say that. I mean, of course, they say that because they have no other argument. Because they're, they're latching on the same way they accuse people today of being anti-Semitic every time they s express solidarity with Palestine we become anti-Semites. Well, it's it's sort of a, it's it's a laughable position to, to say that Haj Amin in any way, shape or form represents an indigenous or native anti-Semitic tradition that is the equivalent of the Nazis. It's absolutely absurd. Haj Amin did collaborate, yes, and he's been condemned for that. And the reality of the, of the fact is that the Palestinians themselves were subjected to a colonial enterprise from 1917 all the way until their ethnic cleansing in 1948. And Haj Amin is a transient moment. He's one moment. And remember, Haj Amin, of course, was created by the British. I mean, his position in Palestine as the head of the Supreme Muslim Council was, in fact, a position created by the British to mollify Arab 
concerns in Palestine in the 1920s. But, re- but remarkably, the British did not create a secular national equivalent to the Zionists whom they recognized in the mandate structure. They created the Supreme Muslim Council. So they tried to create this Muslim equivalent to the Jewish national project without any of the same kinds of privileges vis-a-vis the nature of the administration of the British mandate and its ultimate goal. And so Haj Amin was, was, was someone who was created by the British. He was a nationalist leader in the 1920s. And he eventually became, he did become anti-Jewish. There's no doubt about that. He did. But that is in the context of this conflict where you have a Jewish Zionist nationalist movement that is aggressively claiming all of Palestine. And so he then equates Jews as the enemy by the 1940s. There's no doubt about that. And we can condemn him all we want, but it does not come out of an ideology of racial difference. That's the other point I think we need to say without spending too much time on Haj Amin, because I think that's honestly a distraction to the fundamental issues. Haj Amin is a symptom of the problem, you know, of British colonialism and of colonial Zionism and of one particular reaction to it at a particular moment that everybody on earth, as far as I can tell, has deplored without actually deploring the the, the, the racist nature of colonial Zionism in Palestine. Tarek Bakoni writes about young people who've never left Gaza, I'm, I'm remembering from his book, for whom Jew, Israeli, and F-16 all appear to be the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious and it's, it's deplorable, but that's the, that's the nature of, of when, when Israel... I mean, again, we're talking about Israel. Haj Amin comes, is there before, is you know, in the colonial Zionist movement, so we can stick to the history if you wish. Or we can we can we can do what you're just doing now and bring us up to, to to the present in Gaza. And, and the reality is that if you keep oppressing people in the name of the Jewish people, which is why Zion, colonial Zionism is so is such a damaging enterprise to coexistence and to the ecumenical frame. Why why it destroys the ecumenical frame in Palestine is precisely because it creates this ontological split, this difference between Jew and Arab, which would never have taken place in the way that it did had it not been for colonial Zionism and its its appalling differentiation uh, of Arab and Jew and this idea that you can't be an Arab Jew, you can't be a Jewish Arab, and if you are, there's something wrong with you. And and of course, some of the, the worst reactions, Hajj Amin is one of the most you know appalling reactions, but again, to, to focus on the reaction is to miss the point that is reacting to something. And the historian, in any case, would always tell you, contextualize. Zionist settlers quickly framed violent Palestinian resistance to their settlement project as pogroms, misleadingly but very revealingly, using a term that implies mob violence with government complicity. The British, meanwhile, pathologized the violence as sectarian and, in doing so, ignored their own profound complicity. You write, quote, Having created a political context in which an obviously new intercommunal conflict erupted before their eyes, British colonial officials presumed to stand above the racial and religious fray as if they were not deeply implicated in it. An important element of this discourse was the judgment of sectarian acts as barbaric and their contrast with the allegedly normative, civilized order of British rule. Let's let's break that down. In, In what ways was this emerging pattern of of violence set by British imperialists and by Zionist settlers. Why did the way that Zionist and British colonialists respectively frame this violence serve the interests, respectively, of Zionist and British colonialists? And then lastly, what sort of older discourses 
or framings of Orientalist ones of Arab violence did this all draw upon? And then looking ahead, in what ways did it help lay the foundation for discourses around Arab and Muslim violence that we've continued to see in recent decades very much through today? Well, first of all, the most obvious answer is to say that the major Arab-Jewish riots that take place, the first major sort of breakdown along lines of Arab versus Jews, takes place after the mandate is created, or, or in, the, in that early period, after the Balfour Declaration, certainly. And it clearly sort of indicates that people who had been protesting, who had been appealing, who had been pleading with the British to abandon the Balfour Declaration because it's so manifestly and egregiously unjust to the natives. If you, if, you, if you accept that the natives are equal, which of course the Balfour Declaration did not, nor did colonial Zionism. They just ignored the natives as if they were totally irrelevant to understandings of Zionism. And the, the, the reality is that people protest and protest and protest. And eventually, when you keep ignoring their civil protest, they turn to other means. And so the breakdown of, of order and these riots, of course, that took place, or these anti-British and anti-Zionist riots, inevitably do in these, in these periods, they do conflate, and this is the great tragedy of colonial Zionism, that it becomes very difficult to separate Jews from Zionists in this period. And, but the irony, again, the irony or the perversity of what's going on is that this happens after colonial Zionism enters the scene because they are trying to create a Jewish state and they make it impossible for people to, to, to identify as Arab Jews or Jewish Arabs. They make it very difficult, I should say, because it's antithetical to the very logic of Zionism, which is to say that your political identity is tied to your Judaism, which is tied to the Jewish state that's going to be created. It's antithetical to the ecumenical project. And so when there is a like an, a, an anti-colonial uprising or a riot, call it what you will. There's no question that innocent people are killed. There's no doubt about that. There's no question that there was also Zionist provocations in almost every instance, including Jabotinsky in, in the first Nebi Musa riot that I talk about in the book. And, and the, the amazing thing about this is how, how Jabotinsky and others describe it as a pogrom, even though, of course, a pogrom is coming out of, again, an Eastern European context, which again reminds us of how Zionism comes out of a European context, responding to European problems and using European discourses and language of the non-Western to solve a European problem. A pogrom is completely misleading because, of course, it's not a pogrom. It's not that the British were there tolerating the Palestinians to attack Jews. It's absolutely not. This was a, you could think of it as an anti-colonial sort of mobilization, or you could say it a riot in the context of a colonial, of a developing colonial situation. It's not a pogrom. It's absurd to call it a pogrom. And it's profoundly misleading because it suggests that the Zionists were not part of a colonial project, which they were in Palestine, in a way that the Jews who were subjected to pogroms in Europe were obviously not. There they were victims of anti-Semitism. But that's not the case in Palestine. It's absurd to, to equate these two contexts because one is where the Jews are living in Europe and are victimized and discriminated against historically, culturally, and politically, and in fact targeted by people associated with the state as the state doesn't do anything to protect them, versus colonial Palestine where the Zionists are coming in with extraordinarily racist, I talk about Weizmann and Jabotinsky, and their racism was profound. 
towards the, the Palestinians. It was profound, and they write about it, and the records are all there for anyone to look at. That's the amazing thing. There are very few colonial encounters or settler colonial enterprises where the documentary record is so dense and modern and recent and unavailable to just about anyone. You can go read any of Weitzman's letters. Go back and read his letters. They're all published. And you'll see what I'm talking about. And the same for Jabotinsky. And so the idea of saying that they are the victims and they are the victims of a pogrom is just profoundly misleading. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by The New Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Toll of Its Military Machine, by Norman Solomon. From Iraq through Afghanistan and Syria, and on to little-known deployments in a range of countries around the globe, the United States has been at perpetual war for at least the past two decades. 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan set into motion a hugely consequential shift in America's foreign policy, a constant state of war that is almost entirely invisible to the American public. War Made Invisible by the journalist and political analyst Norman Solomon exposes how this happened and what its consequences are, from military and civilian casualties to drained resources at home. Necessary, timely, and unflinching, War Made Invisible by Norman Solomon is available now from the New Press. Order your copy wherever books are sold. You write, quote, The brutal British suppression of the anti-colonial revolt in Palestine in 1936 had already galvanized anti-Zionist sentiment across the Arab world and had stigmatized Arab Jews as potential agents of Zionism. And a key moment here is 1941, when these attacks in Baghdad, known as the Farhud, take place, killing 180 Jews. And this is in the wake, important context here, of the British overthrowing a nationalist government in Iraq and reimposing the Hashemite monarchy. What was the place of Jews in Baghdadi society in particular? And what did this outbreak of violence reveal about how Zionism and also these larger colonial forces were transforming the entire region's capacity for coexistence, and Baghdad's in particular? Well, I mean, it's an it's a important question and uh, like a very difficult history in the sense that what happened to the Jews of Baghdad in the Farhud of 1941 was terrible. And it's one of the horrific results of the breakdown of coexistence that had been the hallmark of this part of the world for centuries. The remarkable thing is that what's happened since then is that there has been sort of a denial on the part of the colonial Zionists who then say, look what happened to the Jews of Baghdad Look at the Farhud. This is proof that Zionism is essential. And they miss the point that without colonial Zionism, without the provocations of colonial Zionism, in other words, what colonial Zionism was doing in Palestine, building up over decades, an extraordinary amount of resentment that would never have been placed, as far as I can tell, on the Jews of Baghdad or anyone else. Not to excuse what happened, because what happened is deplorable and needs to be studied and needs to be historicized and needs to be dealt with and acknowledged the way any massacre, the way the 1816 massacre that I talk about in my book 
a, a far larger sort of um, moment in terms of the, the, the level of destruction, but nevertheless, both are horrific moments. One is 1860, one is 1941. The question that I ask in the book is, why is it that this 1860 massacre was able to galvanize the an ecumenical, anti-sectarian movement led, in fact, in many instances by Christian Arabs who were perfectly aware of a sectarian dystopia that might, in fact, result if, if people don't act in a certain way and are not educated in a certain way, in, in an ecumenical way. They were able to do that. And, and they were able to collaborate and build these extraordinary collaborations with Muslim compatriots as Arabs, as Ottomans, and so on and so forth. The same could have happened in theory with the after the Farhud in 1941, if it were a localized, which I mean, of course, it was a localized event, but if it had just remained a localized event, instead, it was inevitably became part of a colonial Zionist project, both in terms of the interpretation, in terms of resistance to it, in terms of in terms of the way it's been interpreted, the way it's been denied, the way it's been manipulated. And, and the interesting thing is that it, it led, in a sense, not to the end of the Baghdadi Jewish community, because it persisted for a while, at least until 1952, I mean, not very long, but until the creation of Israel. Um, but it certainly was clearly a, a mark, a very a terrible mark that, that portended the end of or foreshadowed the end of Arab Jewish uh, coexistence in, in Iraq in this period. And the, the terrible thing is that it shouldn't have been an end. It should have been, if anything, a warning to people. This is what happens when people conflate religious identities with political identities. And that's why it's, it's catastrophic to do so. And you need to, in fact, condemn the Farhud unequivocally and then work to, to build a new form of Arab Jewish or Muslim Christian Jewish sense of coexistence, whether it's in Iraq or elsewhere. But it wasn't able to do so precisely because of colonial Zionism. These are my point that there's this really... It's actually kind of shocking when you think about it. Again, because most people, the apologists for uh, colonial Zionism want to say this is evidence that there could be no coexistence. And that, again, is, is completely contradicted by the history that I, that I explore in the book. The problem, of course, with all these moments, these terrible moments of, of sectarian violence, is that people tend to want to avoid talking about them rather than discussing them and being honest about them and and documenting them and narrating them and, and and actually talking about the great tragedy of this moment is both the persecution of the Palestinians in Palestine and their ethnic cleansing and their the destruction of their society by colonial Zionism and by colonial Zionists like Ben Gurion and Weizmann and others and Rabin and all these other people, all who came from Europe again. And then the the reaction in, in certain parts of the Arab world, which was in fact anti-Jewish, they conflated Jews with Zionists, and it was one of the, this is one of the great tragedies and one of the great terrible effects, I think, of of colonial Zionism's damage to the ecumenical frame. It doesn't that doesn't absolve the people who did the actions, and it doesn't absolve uh, Arab nationalists and Iraqi nationalists and others of their of their responsibility, but it puts it in a certain framework. Yeah, continuing. Along these lines, you, you cite Iraqi Jewish and very Orientalist scholar Ali Kaduri, quote, Zionism is a doctrine that had no appeal to Oriental Jewries. 
their historical experience was profoundly different from that of the East European Jewries, where Zionism was invented. And this just couldn't be made more abundantly clear. Zionism was an Ashkenazi Jewish project, not a Mizrahi one, and a really powerful and deeply humanistic thing about your book is that you tell the story of 1948 as an intertwined set of catastrophes because alongside the Nakba, Mizrahi Jews fled or were expelled to Israel from across an Arab world they had long inhabited as Arab Jews. Suddenly you write, Arab Jew becomes an impossible identity. Well, not exactly suddenly, but this is really the breaking point when that identity that's been under stress for these decades of Zionist settlement becomes no longer possible. You write, quote, the eviction of hundreds of thousands of Muslim and Christian Palestinian Arabs perversely and tragically sealed the fate of Jewish communities in the Arab world. The loss of a multi-religious Palestine was a terrible blow that was compounded by the end of Jewish life in most of the Arab world. The destruction of the idea that one could be simultaneously Arab and Jewish still scars the Arab world. How did this mass displacement of Mizrahi Jews in, in places like Baghdad and also many other places, how did that occur? And to what extent were Zionist or Israeli agents directly complicit in it? Well, I mean, the, the answer, again, depends on which place we're talking about. I know I've given this answer to you a million times, but again, we have to be specific and contextual. So in the case of Iraq, there is uh, now evidence. I was just reading Avi Shleim's book. He's an Israeli historian who has a memoir that's recently published where he says that, that it was Israeli or Zionist agents who who planted, uh, if I remember correctly, he said they planted bombs in synagogues or something like this. That he says that the Zionists were were absolutely responsible for it, for it, creating the conditions that helped the exodus of Iraqi Jews out of Iraq. On the other hand, the Iraqi state obviously played the crucial role in this, in that that they they also sort of fell to the, the this extraordinarily low level of encouraging Jewish Iraqis to leave Iraq, and it was an immense loss. It was a catastrophic. It was a, it's a catastrophic reaction to Zionism. It's also a catastrophic failure of imagination. And above all, it's a catastrophic political and social and human failure on the part of people reacting to Zionism. Because what it does, in effect, is that it confirms in the worst possible way this idea that you can't be Jewish and Iraqi, Jewish and Arab. And that's why I think in places like Syria and other places, Jews were not expelled. It's important to emphasize, nor in Egypt were they expelled as Jews. Or in Lebanon, which I know best, they were not expelled as Jews. So it's it is important to emphasize this this point. But nevertheless in a lot of people's minds um especially in the 1940s and 1950s there was this conflation as you said earlier to me. People are going to conflate if if you're creating a Jewish state and you're always speaking in the name of the Jewish people and you're acting uh, on behalf of the Jewish people and you have a certain kind of you have agents on the ground who are who are mobilizing Jewish communities, especially after the Holocaust in the Arab East, where there's there was a huge reservoir of, of people that that the Zionist state wanted in the absence, you know, after the Holocaust, after the catastrophe of the Holocaust, they wanted to bring in these Iraqi Jews and other Jews, Moroccan Jews, um, North African Jews, Tunisian Jews, uh, Yemeni Jews into Israel to bolster the demographic sort of change after expelling the native Palestinians. Rather than see these as antithetical 
one has to see them as related because this is the same this is the same horror that has different aspects and it's not that one cancels out the other it's that they both are fundamentally in my reading fundamentally a product and a consequence of colonial zionism in palestine there is no reason again to emphasize this point there is no reason why arab and jewish should have become as antithetical as they became as ontological opposites there is absolutely no reason short of colonial zionism there's just no doubt in my mind as i said even today when you say if you say dan if you say a jewish arab people look at you suspiciously and like wait that doesn't make sense that doesn't sit even though it should there's no reason why i mean you can be i mean the the bizarre thing is that you can be a jewish german and people are fine with that which is the most oddest thing given given the holocaust and given the anti-semitism in germany and nazism and all that but people are have more of a reaction it seems to me to the to the idea of saying a jewish arab today because of this kind of the way people have been have been i think misled by the the zionist narrative on the one hand and of course as i said by the deplorable reaction of arab states after 1948 where where in some cases they gave in to the worst chauvinistic reactions on the part of people responding to zionism the Nakba laid the groundwork for the next phase and era of Arab politics, what I'll be discussing in coming episodes with Abed Tikriti. You write, quote, The sense of crisis expressed by many Arab writers reflected a clear Nakba sensibility. Why were we defeated? What went wrong? How can we change ourselves in the face of a victorious and clearly modern Zionism? Some answers to these difficult questions were squarely secular nationalist. Others, like those proposed by the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, were quite clearly more Islamist. And still others were communist or socialist. The 1948 defeat in Palestine catalyzed rather than diminished a commitment among many Arabs to an ecumenical nationalist frame insofar as Muslim Christian understanding was concerned. The prevailing sentiment was not that the Nada ideas of progress or brotherhood had been wrong, but that they needed far more urgent, anti-colonial, systematic, sovereign nationalization. The great defeat of 1948 thus called for root and branch reform. The palpable sense of danger that surrounded the Arab world was mirrored by the belief that the response to this danger could best be, indeed had to be, articulated by Arabs themselves. The following period will we'll see powerful egalitarian and universalist left politics, but, but they'll also give rise to, to more sectarian projects. Another way too big question, but to set the table for these future interviews that I'm doing, can you describe how different actors in the region, how they responded to this crisis for Arabs and for the Nada as Arabs from a perspective of the Nada? How, how was the crisis discussed? What what new courses were charted in the midst of it? Well, I mean, the, the catastrophe of the Nakba, the destruction of Palestine, you know, if you just look geographically where Palestine is, I mean, the, 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 it's at the very heart of the Arab East and the destruction of Palestine and the dispersal of the Palestinians and their eviction and ethnic cleansing by the new Israeli state, this so-called Jewish state that was created, you know, at the expense of the native population, had massive, massive reverberations around the region as people 
first of all, we're stunned by the, the, the extent of the catastrophe. I think a lot of people, I think until the very last were sort of, not, especially in the neighboring countries, you know, had, didn't have the same sense and exposure to this idea of what this project was. And even after people had been expelled, a lot of people thought they were going to go back to their homes. And it's only with time that they realize that, that that's done and there's no going back right away, at least in the foreseeable future. And so, it, and, and then the defeat of all these Arab armies had profound, oh, Arab, I shouldn't even say armies because they really were detachments. And the Arab armies, these were all relatively new states, incredibly weak militaries. The only effective military force was the Jordanian force, which was under British officers. And the Israelis and the, and the or the Zionists and the, the Jordanians had already colluded before the war to figure out how to divide up the pie, so to speak. So the, the Egyptians were incredibly poorly equipped, the Syrians were poorly equipped, and so on and so forth. And, and so what happened is that, nevertheless, the, the, the shock of the defeat of all these newly independent Arab states, in a cause that was so obviously one of justice and injustice from an Arab perspective, that, that inevitably had a huge effect around the, the region. I mean, Nasser, the Nasser of Egypt, who becomes the, the leader of Egypt and the most famous Arab leader of the 20th century, and certainly the most anti-colonial of the Arab leaders of the 20th century, he talks about in his memoir, in, his sort of, in, in one of his pieces, he talks about his sort of being scarred by his involvement in the 1948 war, not having equipment, fighting, and then realizing that there was a, a profound problem at home in Egypt because they were fighting a just cause, but with the wrong kind of, you know, support, with the wrong kind of leadership, with the wrong kind of state that was dependent on the British. And he realized there was a fundamental change that was needed. Other people, as I said, took different lessons from it. The Islamists took a different set of lessons. The communists took a different set of lessons. But there were these there were revolutions throughout the period. It's interesting. In Syria, in Egypt, in Iraq, there were a series of revolutions right after 1948, in part because of the very simple problem that colonial Zionism presented, which is like, how can we lose to this modern Zionist project that very clearly fuses religious identity with secular national state building? And that poses an existential problem to being Arab. And, that, and, and one of the most famous Arab constitutional writers, a Christian Arab uh, by the name of Edmond Rabat, wrote in 1957, if I'm not mistaken, he wrote, you can't have the triumph of Zionism and have the triumph of Arabism. It's one or the other, because one is about the fusion of a religious and nationalist, ethno-religious nationalist idea together, Zionism, and the other one is an ecumenical project. And you can, they, they simply cannot coexist as such because they have fundamentally different ways of, of structuring themselves. And another answer to 1948 was, was when Satar Husari, who I talk about a lot in the book in Iraq, he was a pedagogue, a famous, quite brilliant anti-colonial pedagogue and, and the creator of the Iraqi educational system. He was asked, how could it be that five Arab armies were defeated in 1948. And he said precisely because there were five Arab armies. In other words, our disunity and our fragmentation under colonial auspices is what led us to be unprepared to fight this existential battle. So different people had different responses to this existential crisis, but every single person, whether Islamist or secularist or nationalist or communist, understood 
that colonial Zionism was, was an existential problem because of both the location of where Palestine was, because of Palestine's significance, and because of an awareness that the, uh, the, the, the Zionist project was not going to go away anytime soon. How did the legacy of the Nada and the decades of mandate period opposition, resistance to Zionism, how did that come to shape the contours and, and dominant trends of Palestinian nationalism, of the Palestinian national movement in the decades after 48? Well, the, the most obvious thing is that there are Christian and Muslim leaders of the Palestinian national movement. Uh, Yasser Arafat, of course, is the most famous and, and he was the most important of all the leaders. And he, of course, was Muslim. But George Habash was another famous Palestinian leader, uh, the head of the PFLP, and he was Christian. Both were exiled from their homeland. Both were refugees. Both were uh, made stateless by the Nakba of 1948. And both were committed in different ways to this idea of reconstituting a Palestinian identity, an Arab identity, in the context of an ecumenical frame, Muslim and Christian. And so the interesting thing about the Palestinians is precisely because there is this Zionist project that confronts one constantly with an extraordinarily aggressive, violent project of settler colonialism that's constant and ongoing. It forces Christians and Muslims together. Whether they, I mean, so in part they would have done it, I think, anyway, because that's that's the that's the inheritance of the Nada. They would have worked together no matter what. But in part because of the pressures being put on them by the Zionists. The tragedy again is that Arab Jews and Jewish Arabs quickly leave the equation in this period, and you know they they ideally one day will come back into the fold, into an anti-colonial fold when. Arab Jewish or Jewish Arab identity is reconstituted in new terms. Because in the end, you know, that, that is a key component of any future. The war on terror, the, the US-UK invasion of Iraq, the resulting rise of ISIS and their obliteration of mandate era borders, the Syrian civil war, for the past few violent decades, everything in the, the Middle East, in the Mashriq, has come to be understood through the lens of sectarianism and an extraordinarily violent sectarianism at that. How, how can the story you've told help us demystify these dominant narratives that frame for the West these nightmares that have so engulfed so much of the region since September 11th? Well, first of all, because these nightmares have engulfed the region in large part thanks to U.S. imperialism, thanks to colonial Zionism and thanks to the, the repressive state structures that was set up by the British and then the Americans um, after, and during, the, during and after the Cold War. So the, that's part number one. I mean, there is no ISIS, of course. ISIS is a modern creation. There is no ISIS in the period that I talk about. There's no ISIS in the 19th century. There's no ISIS in the 20th century. There's no ISIS in the 18th century or in 17th or 16th or 15th centuries. And so you just need to know a bit of history to understand how anachronistic, again, once again, how cartoonishly anachronistic ISIS is. The horror show of what ISIS became, it, was, it really is a dystopia created by the wreckage of major societies and urban centers after 9-11 in America's so-called war on terror. And we all know that the U.S. invasion of Iraq was not just you know profoundly immoral, but it was also profoundly illegal 
and waged under false, totally false pretenses uh, of the, the connection between 9-11 and Iraq, which, which everybody knows, and everyone knew at the time, frankly, everyone who knew any history knew that there was a ludicrous association between Iraq and 9-11. So my, my point is that, that, again, the wreckage of the Arab East, and that's what we're talking about, Dan. We're talking about Palestine has been destroyed. Lebanon was convulsed by a civil war uh, and is effectively, like the state itself, the state structure was more or less cannibalized and destroyed. Syria has been destroyed. Iraq has been destroyed. So in other words, this entire region, and Palestine, of course, is gone. And Israel itself, you know, is 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 in constant crisis. And, and in any case, it's not part of the, it's deliberately sees itself as not part of the region. It sees itself as 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 foreign to the region, as European, as Western. And so the, the amazing thing about this is that the very heart of what what had been the most extraordinary, promising, dynamic embodiment of coexistence for centuries, culminating in the late 19th, early 20th century, is today a landscape, a, a really a dystopian landscape uh, in terms of the amount of horror and sectarianism and so on and so forth. But that's all in the context of a post-1948 and certainly 1967 U.S. domination of this region. So I think you can't possibly explain ISIS and say it's got to do with history because it's manifestly not. It's got to do with what's happened to this region since 1948 and certainly since 1967, I would say. And, and this U.S. obsession with oil and Israel and Arab autocracies and the, and the strangulation of any kind of democratic sort of civic order in any of this part of the world has led us to this horrific sort of dead end where we are today. You write, quote, the military nationalist revolutionaries in Iraq, Egypt, and Syria proffered a basic bargain to their respective citizenries in return for an allegedly powerful sovereignty denied them by British and French colonialism. They demanded a monopoly on power to fulfill the promise of this sovereignty. And, quote, strongmen appeared to be best positioned to thwart Western colonialism and Zionism and to decisively overthrow the old order of things with its feudal interests and religious obscurantists. Can we ever explain these domestic and internal factors in a way that's abstracted from the colonial context, not only historically in terms of the mandate period and the destruction of the Ottoman Empire, but continuously as Western imperial power passes from being a European to an American-led project? No, no, the answer is absolutely not. Of course not, because that's like trying to analyze, you know, Africa in the late 19th century, early 20th century without European colonialism. It's like trying to analyze Central America without the United States or U.S. hegemony or Mexico in a certain period without U.S. hegemony over Mexico or Haiti or so on and so forth. So the answer is no, you cannot, you cannot dissociate the, the, the state structures that were put in in the, post, in the so-called post-colonial, because it's, it, this term is very is problematic because, of course, Iraq was invaded by the United States in 2003. Palestine is still colonized and still being colonized. And so the idea of a post-colonial doesn't even make sense. But it is, if you want to call it that, as in they're nominally independent Arab states, the state structures, the decay of the state structures, the abuse of the authoritarian leaders, their anti-democratic tendencies, these may have all happened. And again, we, we've talked a lot about counterfactuals. This may well have happened. It's not to say this couldn't have happened without Israel or without the United States. 
But the reality is that the wars and the militarization of the region, 1948, 1956, 1967, 1973, these had a profound effect inevitably on Egypt and on Syria. You can't possibly dissociate these things. The Ba'ath Party that took over both Syria and Iraq in different branches was itself a creation of the of the interwar period and, and an anti-colonial mobilization. So you, again, you cannot dissociate that from colonialism. The, the, the fact that the, the extraordinarily anti-democratic Gulf states now that have such enormous resources are all profoundly anti-democratic and all in the U.S. orbit. You, cannot, you can't separate one from the other. When Iraq invaded Kuwait, the United States, of course, went into war to sort of, uh, you know, to, to expel Iraq. Again, you can't get rid of the United States from this equation. After backing Iraq in its war with Iran. After it partially backing Iraq with its war. Yeah, I mean, the United States was, was playing both sides in a sense. They didn't, you know, but after backing Iran for sure under the Shah, again, so you can't understand Iran today, for example. Of course, Iran is not Arab, but you can't un- possibly understand Iran without understanding the U.S. role in backing the Shah in the coup against Mossadegh in 53, in the extraordinary hostility to Iran after the revolution, the sanctions, and so on and so forth. I mean, these things are all, of course, interrelated. There's no way of separating the internal sort of debacles, and and the Arab regimes have been debacles. There's no doubt about that, and anyone understands that. Uh, And the Syrian government today, the oppression of, of Syrians, the the, the constant usage of a discourse of ecumenism, of, of national unity to crush dissent is one of the worst aspects of the worst manipulations of the history of the ecumenical frame that I've been talking about. In other words, there's a real history of coexistence that get, then gets manipulated by these regimes. The Egyptian government does the same thing today. They use the history of coexistence to prop up their own authoritarian anti-democratic rule at the expense of the very people who had been at the heart of elaborating this idea of an ecumenical culture. LCC tries to present himself as, I'm the only person who can defend the Coptic Christians. Meanwhile, Assad says, I'm the only one who can defend the Alawites against the the raving mad Islamists. And the tragedy, of course, in this is that people in both Syria and in Egypt, especially the minorities, believe it. Because in the end, they're faced with this kind of and it's sort of, it's sort of, in a sense, a. It's hard to make this exactly right in, in, as a historian, but it's sort of like it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the same way that Zionism does with Jews of the Arab East, of saying, you know, you, you you can't be Arab and Jewish. You have to choose sides, and we're the ones who will protect you. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the same thing with this: if you keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, and antagonizing people. Um, and then claiming minorities, you end up in this catastrophic situation, which is what Syria happened in Syria, what's happened in Egypt, what's happened in Palestine throughout. It's, of course, so often Arabs themselves who best understand that the Arab regimes have been debacles, looking just at major political upheavals in very recent years, namely Iraq's Tishreen movement and Lebanon's 17th October revolution. What what does it reveal that these mass movements across the Mashriq continue to mobilize squarely against sectarianism? Yeah, I think that's that's an important point. That we always remember that the ecumenical frame, despite the fact that it's been manipulated by authoritarian, anti-democratic leaders in every instance, every, almost every instance in the Mashriq, whether it's Egypt, Syria, Iraq, 
they all manipulated or manipulate the ecumenical heritage. They all do to stay in power, to divide and rule. They do it constantly. Nevertheless, what's so interesting is how, despite the catastrophes of ISIS and the dystopia that the United States has introduced into this region, in its quest for total domination, for hegemony, for oil, to support Israel in its colonialism against the Palestinians, despite all this, what's remarkable is how many people remain committed at a fundamental level, still committed, still living, still embodying the ecumenical frame. You still see people all throughout this region. And what they need is a change of context. And maybe they'll be able to produce it themselves as in the attempted so-called Arab Spring that was crushed. But that doesn't mean that they will be crushed in the future necessarily. Who knows what's going to happen? But the point is they have a heritage. They have a history that they can draw upon. A history that is in its uh, in a certain aspect of it has a kind of a beauty of coexistence that can be mobilized and marshaled once again. And as I said, we go back to the question of the Arab Jew or the Jewish Arab. To me, that is an absolutely crucial aspect of the future as well. That has to be reconstituted to help resolve the question of Palestine, you know, in equitable, in real terms, in terms of equality, in terms of freedom, in terms of liberation. And I think once that's resolved, if that's resolved, when that's resolved, we'll see resolutions of other parts of the region as well. At least I hope. Turning to to the U.S. and how the politics here in terms of the genocide happening in Gaza and in terms of Zionism and the Palestinian freedom struggle, do you think that this newly massive mobilization around Palestine, really unlike anything we've ever seen in the United States, not even close anything that's happened in the past, do you think that this is also in a sense creating an ecumenical frame of sorts for left politics in the U.S.? Because one, the really diverse composition of a movement that is a movement of young people of all sorts, that is Palestinian, that is Jewish, that is Arab, that is Muslim, that is people of color, because of that. And also because this is really, in my experience on the left since the late 90s, really the first big opening towards internationalism the American left has had in many many decades. And and I'm hopeful that this will mark a permanent transformation of this new left politics that's been ascendant arguably for about the past decade or so towards a kind of new internationalism that will take us in directions I don't know where, but positive ones, I hope. What, what do you think? I hope so, is what I would say. I would also say that there is no question that the, the Palestine solidarity movement that we see generationally inflected and generationally expressed in this country and manifested in this country is profoundly ecumenical. And there's no question. I mean, as you said yourself, it brings together on an equal footing uh, Muslims, Christians, Jews, peoples of other faiths, in fact, from all faiths, uh, including people from all around the world, people of all ethnicities, who actually sort of agree fundamentally on this basis that we can be different in our faiths, in our backgrounds, in our belongings, and at the same time, we transcend that in Palestine. And that, that is the heart of an ecumenical sort of movement. So yes, in, the, in that sense, I see it as profoundly inspiring and hopeful. On the other hand, just like with the, 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 the ecumenical frame I talk about in the book, the, the great problem is that there's always the alternative, which is to say, 
those who propose a much narrower, a much more bigoted, a much more racialized, a much more racist future. And just like with, with, with the ecumenical frame, there are the people that I celebrate in the book, the anti-sectarian people, uh, the anti-racist people, there are the racists and there are the sectarians. And, and so too in this moment around us in America, there are those who are going to be, who are going to mobilize and marshal the worst aspects of people's fears and anxieties and identities and prejudices. And that's what we're up against. You've talked about the necessity of repairing this rupture that made being an Arab Jew impossible. And I think something that's not exactly that, but at least sort of echoes or resonates with that is going on along those lines with the explosion of anti-Zionist Jewish organizing in the United States from groups like like Jewish Voice for Peace. Because it seems so interesting. It's that obviously above all else, it's about solidarity with, with Palestinian struggle. But it's also very much a Jewish project of Jews. It's about remaking what it means to be Jewish apart from Israel and without Zionism. It, it seems to me, is this the exact sort of thing that your story tells about, about what Zionism robbed Arab Jews of? Yes, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, it's a parallel. Obviously, we're talking about Jewish Voice for Peace is an American organization. As you said, different context, but the, exactly the same idea, this idea of separating one's commitment. And that's what Jewish Voice for Peace, as far as I understand it, is. It's a commitment to a form of Judaism, to an ethical Judaism, that is completely separate from Zionism, that, that sees Zionism, colonial Zionism in particular, as antithetical to an ethical Judaism. And in that sense, the idea of being an Arab Jew can be reconstituted and has to be reconstituted along lines that separate out one's profound commitment to one's faith as an ethical endeavor, as a religious endeavor, as an intellectual endeavor, as, a, as an emotional endeavor, as opposed to a, a political project that is based on the oppression and segregation of peoples on the basis of their religious affiliation and ethnic, ethno-religious affiliation. So, yes, I do see them as, as in a sense, parallel. And in a sense, it's the same struggle that has to be waged in different arenas with different, in different contexts. But there's the same kind of hopeful, I think, ecumenical basis to the struggle. Yes, I do see that. And, and lastly, along these lines you've touched on in the last few answers, that there's this universality about Palestine. There's a, there's a chant that's been taken up in protests around the English-speaking world. In our thousands, in our millions, we are all Palestinians. And near the end of his life, Edward Said spoke of, of Palestinianism as a sort of counter-myth to Zionism. And in summarizing Said's ideas, Adam Schatz has said that, that if Zionism was the song of a single people, Palestinianism holds out the hope of a non-sectarian future of all peoples. What, what is the Palestinian alternative to the ethno-nationalism of Zionism? And zooming out beyond the question of Zionism, why is it that Palestinianism has this sort of universal resonance and significance on the positive side? And then on the much bleaker side, why is it as the president of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, has recently said that Gaza is really a laboratory for our bleakest possible futures? Well, because Palestine, of course, in the idea of Palestinian sort of solidarity or solidarity with the Palestinians appeals to our most profound ecumenical nature in the sense, again, of this idea that you can be Jewish, you can be Muslim, you can be Christian, you can be Buddhist, you can be anything. 
and you can transcend that sort of uh, cherish that profoundly and transcend that in terms of recognizing our common humanity and our common idea and belief in justice which has to be ultimately a secular form of justice an ecumenical sort of commitment combined with a secular form of justice that is what we're transcending to this notion of a universal justice, a universal humanity. There's something quite profound in that. And I think without any doubt in its most beautiful form, that is what solidarity with the Palestinian question is and the Palestinian cause is. And set against that is this, this commitment to an ethno-religious nationalist project that is extraordinarily bleak and narrow and ultimately has led to a, a catastrophic dead end that we see playing out in Gaza right now, genocide, mass destruction, extraordinary scenes that are unimaginable and unconscionable of depravity and of human suffering and of the deliberate, willful creation of human suffering for political, ethno-religious, nationalist ends. And these are the two alternatives before us. And we can gravitate to one side or the other, but we can't be on both sides at the same time. One has to make a choice, ultimately. And my sense is that one side, just like the people who criticized colonial Zionism in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, understood perfectly well, one side represents the past, another one represents the future. And really, it's up to us to sort of figure out which side of history we want to stand on. Well, Osama Magdisi, thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was the final part of my two-part interview with Osama Magdisi, professor of history and chancellor's chair at the University of California, Berkeley. His books include Faith Misplaced, The Broken Promise of U.S.-Arab Relations, 1820 to 2001, Artillery of Heaven, American Missionaries and the Failed Conversion of the Middle East, and the book we discussed today, Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, there is something in human history like retribution, and it is a rule of historical retribution that its instrument be forged not by the offended, but by the offender himself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters written by Ben Maybe at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and also now Instagram at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such site, please leave us a glowing review. Also, The Dig remains nearly impossible to find on Spotify. Please review us on Spotify. Please email Spotify. Please tweet at Spotify. Ask them what the hell is going on. Why can you not find The Dig? Anyhow, rating and review us helps introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. <laughs>